This is day 186 of our daily Bible reading. We'll be completing the whole book of Malachi, four chapters. Lord Heavenly Father, we thank you for a new day of life with fresh mercy and compassion upon your people. We thank you, Lord, for your grace in our lives and the mercy that you show us every day. Please discipline us, Lord. Make us better. Make us more like your Son, that we may be holy in your sight. Please help us to resist sin and to fight the evil that's around us and to be light and salt as you've called us to be. Please bless the reading of your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. The Oracle of the Word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau, and I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Though Edom says, We have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins, thus says the Lord of hosts, They may build, but I will tear down, and men will call them the wicked territory, and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. Your eyes will see this, and you will say, The Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my respect? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, How have we despised your name? You are presenting defiled food upon my altar. But you say, How have we defiled you? In that you say, The table of the Lord is to be despised. But when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you present the lame and sick, is it not evil? Why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you? Or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? But now, will you not entreat God's favor, that he may be gracious to us? With such an offering on your part, will he receive any of you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates, that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. For from the rising of the sun even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense is going to be offered in my name, and a grain offering that is pure, for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you are profaning it, in that you say, The table of the Lord is defiled, and as for its fruit, its food is to be despised. You also say, My, how tiresome it is! You disdainfully sniff at it, says the Lord of hosts. And you bring what was taken by robbery, and what is lame or sick. So you bring the offering. Should I receive that from your hand? says the Lord. But cursed is the swindler who has a male in his flock and vows it, but sacrifices a blemished animal for the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is feared among the nations. 
And now this commandment is for you, O priests. If you do not listen, and if you do not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. And indeed, I have cursed them already, because you are not taking it to heart. Behold, I am coming to rebuke your offspring, and I will spread refuse on your faces, the refuse of your feasts, and you will be taken away with it. Then you will know that I have sent this commandment to you, that my covenant may continue with Levi, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him as an object of reverence. So he revered me and stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and unrighteousness was not found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many back from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should preserve knowledge, and men should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But as for you, you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by the instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. So I also have made you despised and abased before all the people, just as you are not keeping my ways, but are showing partiality in the instruction. Do we not all have one Father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously each against his brother, so as to profane the covenant of our fathers? Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. As for the man who does this, may the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob everyone who answers and awakes, or who presents an offering to the Lord of hosts. This is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and with groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But not one has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit. And what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? Take heed then to your spirit, and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit, that you do not deal treacherously. You have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, How have we wearied him? In that you say, Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or, where is the God of justice? Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? 
for he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, so that they may present to the Lord offerings of righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment, and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against those who swear falsely, and against those who oppress the wage earner and his wages, the widow and the orphan, and those who turn aside the alien and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, so that there may be food in my house. And test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows, then I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of the ground, nor will your vine in the field cast its grapes, says the Lord of hosts. All the nations will call you blessed, for you shall be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. Your words have been arrogant against me, says the Lord. Yet you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. And what profit is it that we have kept his charge, and that we have walked in mourning before the Lord of hosts? So now we call the arrogant blessed. Not only are the doers of wickedness built up, but they also test God and escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord gave attention and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who esteem his name. They will be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I prepare my own possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. So you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. You will tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. 
Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. I'm sure you can tell by the sound of my voice that I'm not doing well, but I don't care. Even though I'm not well, the show must go on. I don't want to abandon y'all, and we need to continue the plan that we are on. So here we are. So I'm going to pull through this as much as I can. I'll probably keep it short because I have low energy and I can barely talk. So my mind is also kind of fuzzy today, so I can't really think straight. And I've had to do a lot of editing for this short reading because I kept messing up. Well, let me be the first to congratulate you on completing the entire Old Testament from beginning to end, page by page. In my Bible, we, we have read 1,150 pages of text. That is amazing how far we've come. And now we are at the New Testament starting tomorrow, beginning with Matthew. We get to see the Messiah that we've been talking about this whole time finally come into the world. We get to see what he's going to do and all the wonderful things that has been prophesied about him. But first, let's talk about Malachi. Malachi is the final prophet of the Old Testament, not only in the order of books we have, but also chronologically. He is after the book of Nehemiah and after the walls of Jerusalem have been rebuilt. And Malachi has some very stern warnings, which, reading through this, I found it very ironic that the Pharisees of the days of Jesus didn't really pay much attention to this book, because a lot of it speaks about them. And not only that, but a lot of it has to do with us. And I was thinking about this as we were reading it, and I was thinking of some good sermon material out of here, because... There is so much hypocrisy going on. There's so much cheating and unfaithfulness that is just so prevalent in today's church. And it's no different than when Malachi wrote this. So let's talk about what Malachi is saying to the people of Israel. So the way that Malachi wrote this is in a series of questions. I think we counted about 23 different questions that God asked. The Lord first says that, I have loved you, and they don't know how that God has loved them. And I mean, really? I mean, your entire history is about how he's loved you. Was not Esau Jacob's brother? Yet I have loved Jacob, and I've shown all this compassion toward you. I hated Esau. I beat him down. He says he's going to rebuild. I'm going to tear that down too. And yet I'm going to increase your borders, Israel. That goes to show how much compassion he's had, and he's had more compassion than they ever deserved. We don't deserve a fraction of the compassion that God shows us. And yet we, to his face, so often mock him and are not honest with him. So we have some work we need to be doing too. And he asks a very important question in verse 6. A son honors his father, or at least he should, and a servant his master. Then if I am a father, which he is, where is my honor? And if I am a master, which he also is, where is my respect? 
and he's saying this to the priests who despise his name. How do these priests despise his name? Are they just saying it, that they despise his name, or is it in their actions and in the condition of their heart that they despise him? And that's how they do it. For example, it says that they present defiled food upon the altar. It's just food. Why is God freaking out about food? It's not about the food. It's about the law that he presented to his people hundreds of years ago, and he expected it to be done a specific way. We do what our parents and what our bosses at work tell us to do because we are obligated to because of their position over us, but we also want to do it out of respect and out of obedience. We want to do it. It's the same way with God. We want to obey him. Not because we have to, but because we want to, because he's worthy of that respect. So that's why these priests are being dishonest, and they're basically cheating God. Why is he so upset with priests in particular? If we recall, what is a priest supposed to represent? It's kind of like at your church. What is the pastor supposed to represent? The pastor is supposed to represent everything that you believe and stand for as a church. They are the face of the church, if you will. So they are the messenger of God in your midst, right? So it's the same thing with the priests. The priests are the ones that are supposed to conduct the business of God, and they are God's representative to mankind. So if the priest is corrupt, then he is going to present a corrupt version of God. And that is going to be the highest dishonor that you can do with God. So, of course, he's upset about this. This is at the very core of religion. Religion is nothing without relationship. Religion is just ritual. And there's a lot of cults and pagan religions out there that do ritual all the time. Ritual accomplishes nothing if it's done wrong. So, God is talking about how, in the condition of their heart, they are providing these defiled foods and sacrifices to his altar. But he's like, if this is your governor, you wouldn't give him this, right? If it was somebody you respected, you wouldn't give him this. Would he accept it from your hand with gladness? Absolutely not, he wouldn't. It would be disrespectful. So in the same way, you're doing this with me, and I find it highly disrespectful. Like he says in verse 14, But cursed be the swindler who has a male in his flock and vows it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king. Don't you think I deserve better than this? My name is feared among the nations. I deserve better, and I demand better. And then in chapter 2, he is going to pronounce a curse on the priests that refuse to change their ways. He says, If you do not listen, if you do not take to heart to give honor to my name, then I will send the curse upon you, I will curse your blessings. There are natural consequences that will happen in, even in our lives if we do not obey God. God will forgive us. God will not hold it against us forever. God does not take away our salvation. But he does allow consequences to happen. It's not like you can sin freely. God never said that we can do what we please after salvation. There are specific things that we need to do in order to maintain that relationship with God because we want to. But it's not beyond God to discipline us like we do with our children. We know it's not a permanent thing. 
but we do it to change a behavior in them. In the same way, God is our Father, and He will do things to change our behavior or to humble us. And we need a heavy dose of humbling most days. And one of the best ways that God shows humility to someone is to show them embarrassment and shame. To cause them to be ashamed, either within themselves or in front of other people. And that will humble you quickly. Like he says in verse 7, and this applies to us because we are all basically priests in this world. For the lips of a priest should preserve knowledge, and men should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. That's you. You were given the message of the Lord, weren't you? The gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. What did Jesus say before he went back to heaven? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, instructing them in everything that I commanded you. That's exactly what he wants us to do. He's already commanded everything he needs from us in his word. Will he reveal things in your own life? Yes, if you ask him and if you're listening. But he wants you to obey the old stuff first before you receive new instruction. This is basically foundational. If you don't have a foundation in God, you can't build upon it, and he won't build upon it. Then he warns here in verse 10 through verse 12 about spiritually mixed marriages. So what he's talking about here is that same issue he had with the people back then was mixed marriages, having an Israelite marry somebody who's not an Israelite. And why does God hate that? Does that mean he doesn't want people to intermarry from different races or ethnicities? No, that's not it at all. But what he's talking about is that the Jewish people were supposed to be separate. They were supposed to be a holy people. That was what they were always intended to be. So what happens is if you marry somebody who's not an Israelite, they have no investment in Yahweh, the true God of Israel. And so you're going to be influenced and pulled in another direction toward a pagan god. And so that is not good. It's kind of like what it says in verse 11. You would marry the daughter of a foreign god. So these girls that you would marry, or men, they brought foreign gods into Jewish homes. And in effect, it would be, if you marry me, you marry my religion. And so you have to Respect what I believe, and I will try and respect what you believe. And God does not want that divided household. And I found it very fascinating in verses 13 through 15 about the idea of divorce. It says here that God doesn't accept their offerings because of the things that they're doing and their unfaithfulness, but also the people refuse to face up to the seriousness of divorce. And it reminded me of when the Pharisees went up to Jesus and said, what's wrong with giving a certificate of divorce? Moses said we could. And Jesus said something to the effect of, he did that because you all are weak. He never wanted divorce for you. And he says it very clearly right here, as clear as day. God hates divorce because a marriage is a covenant relationship. It is a promise. And God always keeps his promises. Therefore, he wants us to always keep our promises. So if we break a covenant with our spouse, what's to say we won't break our covenant with God? It is holy in his sight. 
And so you can't get any clearer than what he says here in verse 16. I hate divorce, says the Lord. I don't know what else you need. God said it clear as day. God established at creation that Adam was only going to marry Eve. We never see Adam marry anybody else, which would be his children, which would be creepy in itself. But when the man and the woman come together, they become one flesh. Adam married Eve. They became one flesh. And that's as far as it goes. That's the traditional model of marriage. And that is God's intended model of marriage. There's so much opposition against that these days in the world, especially with the push of transgenderism and all that. They're trying to destroy what the family structure is in the way God intended it. We need to be careful not to listen to those lies because the Bible says it's a man and a woman marrying. It's as simple as that. Anything other than that is a perversion of demonic influence. Chapter 3 begins by predicting John the Baptist. In verse 1, I'm going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me. That's talking about John the Baptist. But then it talks about how he will be like a refiner's fire and he will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver. This doesn't seem to be the same one though. Because yes, he does purify because what was the water supposed to represent? It's supposed to represent repentance. But that's not really purifying, because purifying comes through salvation or through a godly act. So this will most likely be happening in the second coming of Christ, which is what we see from verses 2 to 4. And John the Baptist is preparing the way for that. Verse 5, he reminds us of the things he hates. Then he says in verse 6, I, the Lord, do not change. That is what we call immutability of God. He never changes. He is always the same. He is always consistent. His standards are never going to change. His power is never going to change. His mission is never going to change. He remains the same forever. Then in verse 7, he reminds them to repent. Return to me, and I will return to you. And then in verse 8, they ask, will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing him. How are you robbing him? In your tithes and offerings. That is a huge contentious issue in the church today, isn't it? Talking about money at church. Tithing is necessary. It is a biblical command to tithe. 10%. Whether you like it or not, you obviously are picking your God. If you don't want to give up your money, and you forget where that money actually comes from, from the hand of God, then you love your money more than you love God. It's as simple as that. This is the only time in the entire Bible that God invites people to challenge him. The book of Deuteronomy specifically says, do not put the Lord God to the test. Jesus uses the same scripture with Satan. Do not put the Lord God to the test. But this is the one time he says, test me on this. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house and see if I will not pour out a blessing from heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. He will bless your finances. If you are faithful with your finances, he will repay you in that. It's not saying he's going to make you rich, but he is definitely going to multiply the influence he can have because money is nothing. Test him on it. Imagine if all churches tithed 100%. 
I think it's less than 20%. I think it's more like 10% right now in your average church of people who tithe. Imagine what the church would look like if everyone tithed. How much mission work we could do. How much debt you could pay off. How much more ministry positions could be opened. How much development could be made on buildings or expansion. It would be phenomenal. But yet we don't have that because people don't want to give up their money. It's so silly. It's just money. But God is so much better than that, and he can do the impossible with your money. Why can't we trust him with that? It's so ridiculous. And I think he hits the nail on the head in verse 13, and where the problem is, especially with everything else going on, but also about the money. Your words have been arrogant against me. Our arrogance, our pride, is why we can't do this. Our pride is what stops us from tithing. It's our pride that stops us from giving the proper things to God. It's our pride that causes divorce. It's all pride. And even worse, in verse 14, these false prophets are actually trying to drive people away from God. Because they're saying things like, it's vain to serve God. What profit is it if you kept his charge? What do you get out of it? So now you call the arrogant blessed. And not only are the doers of wickedness built up, but they also test God and escape. And y'all allowed that. You can't allow this in church. You can't allow this as in within yourself as a believer. So then he finishes the chapter with showing what he's going to do to the ungodly people. And they are going to be judged, and it's not going to be pretty. We also see that at the beginning of chapter 4, that the day is coming, the day of the Lord, and it's going to burn those that do not belong to God, and it will separate those that do. Then he commands us in verse 4 to remember the law of Moses, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb. Observe God's laws. Obey his commandments. John 14, 15 says, If you love me, obey my commandments. That's Jesus speaking there. If you love Jesus, obey his commandments. If you can't do that, then you're demonstrating you how much you don't love him. And that's the reality that we need to have within ourselves. We need to examine ourselves today. Are we doing the right thing? Are we holding back from God? Are we acting arrogantly? Are we robbing him? Are we being unfaithful to him? We need to repent. We need to change. Some of us, it's minor changes. Some of us, it's major changes. But we need to make changes. None of us are perfect. We can all improve. Now, in verse 5, it mentions that he is going to send Elijah before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. From what I understand, this is twofold. For one, a spiritual successor to Elijah was John the Baptist. He was not Elijah himself, even though Elijah never died. But it seems to depict in Revelation that there will be two men who come to earth, chosen by God, to minister on the streets. And then some crazy things are going to happen to them. And one of them is widely believed to be Elijah. So that's what it's pointing to here. He is going to restore the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the hearts of the children to the fathers, so that I will not come and smite the land of the curse. That seems to be more immediate than anything, though. So Malachi doesn't have a lot of nice things to say, because the condition of the heart of man is so dark. But he's warning us, we need to keep ourselves in check 
and God gave us his word so that we know how to stay in check. That's why it's there. That's why it's there for us to know and to read and make aware of what sin is. Paul talks about that. The law was created for you to have an awareness of sin. This is God's standard. This is what he expects. Do it. It's that simple. And I think that's a great way to end the Old Testament. Remember everything that we've read up until this point. Know what God expects and do it. And prepare your hearts for the book of Matthew when we go to see the Lord Jesus being ready to fully submit to him. That should be our drive over the next day or so. That's all I have for today. Thank you for listening. I'm Ryan, and we'll see you next time. Take care, and God bless you.